Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. This is lesson number 13 of our study through the book of Ephesians, and we should finish chapter 5 today. We had the opportunity to uh, watch our brand new grandson the other night. Uh, he came over, he was asleep in his car seat, they set him on the sofa, and they came back three hours later, and he was still asleep in his car seat on the sofa. I knew that my grandsons were perfect, but this seems to be pushing it just a little bit. But uh, it was a lot of fun. We've been playing with him and his brother and other grandchildren. So last week, we finished lesson 12 by looking at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we had a discussion Actually, not as long a discussion as I had anticipated because we did run out of time about what the word submit means. We had to discuss this because in our society today, we don't like, in fact, we hate the word submit. Why is it that we have such difficulty with the word submission? Well, we have difficulty with it because we want to be autonomous, we want to be in control. And we want to do what we want to do. And submission is a counter to all of that. So what does submission mean? To yield oneself to the authority or will of another. And that is uh, anathema to our modern world. We want to be in control of our own lives. But we commented last week that the key to this verse is really not the word submit, but rather the phrase, out of reverence for Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, out of reverence for him, we submit one to another. We had a brief discussion about what this passage means with regard to submit to one another. Does it mean that every one of us submits to every one of us? Or does it mean that every one of us submits to someone in our lives? Well, I would contend the second answer certainly is true. And the first answer is true a lot of the time. We as believers are to submit our will to those that are in authority over us. That's option number two. But we're also to look out for the needs of fellow believers we are to give up our will to the will of another. And we use as our example for that the life of Jesus Christ himself. So we discussed last week people and things that we are to submit to. Number one, we are to submit to God. We are to submit to the governing authorities. We are to submit to the elders in the church because they have given a task of responsibility over us. But there's also things that we're not supposed to submit to. If you remember, Paul, writing in the book of Galatians, says, I refuse to submit to those who wanted to move us back under the Old Testament law. He refused to give in to the uh, legalists who were trying to restore the Jewish law as a requirement for being a Christian. He says, we can't submit to that. Uh, in addition, we see passages where we do not submit to the governing authorities when what the governing authority asks of us violates the word of God. 
But the, the third thing that we talked about, which I actually find interesting, are things that we can't submit to. Not as in we're not supposed to, but we are incapable. Because it says we as unbelievers, as um, not saved, cannot submit to the will of God. We just can't do it. We are incapable. We lack the ability to do it. And the ability to follow God's will is actually a gift that God has given us in Christ. So we talked a lot about what it means to submit, and uh, we didn't particularly like it, but that's where we ended up. Which brings us to the verse that we hate even more, which is verse 22. And if you have your Bible in front of you, you're cheating and looking ahead about what verse 22 says. Years ago, I taught a uh, series of lessons on Bible verses that embarrass us. You know, we as believers sometimes um, are kind of taken aback when people say, but what about that verse over there? And the one I think I began with was verse 22 of chapter 5 of Ephesians which says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And we had a whole lesson back then about what verse 22 and 23 mean. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lesson on verse 22 because we are going to try to make it to the end of the chapter. I uh, tried to come up with several different schemes for getting out of this verse. Uh, I thought about pretending that we had finished the chapter last week. I mean, who would have known, right? And just started into chapter six. I asked my wife if she wanted to uh, teach it, and she said no. Uh, very smart lady. So we're going to talk about verse 22, but we're also going to talk about it in the context of the following verses, because we're going to look at two relationships. Well, one relationship, but looking at it from both sides. Wives are told to submit to their husbands, and husbands are told to love their wives. This is a responsibility for each toward the other. Now, we don't have any trouble in today's society with husbands loving your wives. I mean, we like love, right? We love love. We have songs. We talk about it. We talk about love all the time. Who would be against love? But on the flip side, everybody's against submission. Everybody's against submitting to the will of another person. In reality, if husbands understood what this passage teaches us about love, we would be less likely to sing praises to it. Because the love that we talk about here is not just an emotion, love that makes me feel good. You know, I love you because you bring warm fuzzy feelings to me. No, the love that we're talking about here is a sacrificial love that is willing to give up itself for the good of the beloved. And that's what we're going to talk about. I would contend that if we truly understood what this passage teaches us about love, we wouldn't like it any more than we do the word submit. So we're going to pretend for a moment that this is my... Uh, our marriage mentoring uh, experience where we explain to the, ch the uh, young people who are about to get married what it means for wives to submit and for husbands to love. So let me tell you what the 
average normal sermon looks like on verse 23. It usually goes like this. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then you go into a long discussion about what submission doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you're a robot. It doesn't mean all these other things. And we talk at length about that. And then we get to, oh, we're out of time. Well, you know what submit means and we quit. Because we have such difficulty with this passage. So first, let's follow some of that pattern, okay? Let's first talk about what this verse does not, does not mean. It does not teach that women are supposed to submit to men. It means that one woman is to submit to one man. It isn't all women submit to all men. That is not what this passage says. This verse does not teach that Kamala Harris cannot be vice president. It doesn't say that Amy Barrett can't be on the United States Supreme Court. It doesn't mean that your boss can't be a woman. It has nothing to do with any of that. This verse is talking about one man and one woman, and that's all it's talking about. Now, there are other passages in the scripture that talk about women exerting spiritual authority over men. And these verses do cause a lot of discussion, but that's not what this passage is talking about. So we're not going to get distracted talking about that issue. That is the reason that our church only has uh, male elders and deacons, because of our understanding of the scripture. Other churches will mm, change that a little bit. So this verse, this verse is not talking about men in general and women in general. It's talking about one relationship, one husband, one wife, one husband loving one wife as Christ loved the church, one wife submitting to one husband as the church submits to Christ. That's what this passage is about. So what we really need to understand is that this passage is talking about a picture. Why is marriage so important? Because it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. What we're talking about is keeping that picture clear so the world around us can see the relationship between Christ and his church. Um, I do have a, a nice poem. This is by G.K. Chesterton. I've just always liked this poem. If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land behind, beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. I like that last line. I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. There is nothing in this passage about male being better than female, about husbands being better than... There's nothing in this passage about that. So the first question that we have to address is why should, 
Wives submit to their husbands. Why should they? And throughout history, men have gone to great lengths, men have gone to great lengths to show that it is logical and it makes sense. You know, men think better than women. Well, that's not entirely true. In fact, it's not true at all. Men do have different characteristics in their thoughts than women have, but it's really a spectrum. You know, there's the all the touchy-feely, and then there's the hard reason at the other end. And guess what? All of us are somewhere on that spectrum. But wives are told to submit to their husbands not because husbands are more rational than women, because, well, that isn't always true. I know men who can't think their way out of a cardboard box. Well, if that's not it, what is the reason? Well, it's because, well, wives are, I mean, husbands are more godly. Well, you know that's not true. We all know relationships where the wife is a lot more godly than the husband. So why should the wife submit? Well, we go back to that verse about the wife being the weaker vessel. You remember that verse? Husbands are to lead because they're stronger. Well, physically, that's true. If you look at the average man and the average woman, the average man can lift more weight than the average woman. Well, I've seen my wife deliver eight babies. She's a lot stronger than I am in particular ways. So if it's not because men are brighter, think better, stronger, why do, why are women called to submit to their husbands. You ready for this? This is a deep theological answer. Because God says so. That's it. That's the reason. Because you see, in today's world, we have women who earn more money than their husbands do, who are better educated than their husbands, who have a lot of admirable qualities. And this verse has nothing to say about that. It has nothing to say, well, that's wrong. It has nothing to say with, oh, we, that shouldn't be true. What this passage is doing for us is stopping all the arguments that you and I would have if God didn't say, this is the answer. Why are wives supposed to submit to their husbands? Because God says so. Well, wait a minute. What if my husband is a jerk? Well, the, the first answer to that is you probably shouldn't have married them in the first place, but, you know, sometimes you don't know. But it's not, there's nothing in this passage about, well, if your husband is sweet and kind. In fact, we have a problem with this passage because, what did I say earlier? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. Who goes first? Who goes first? I, the husband, will love my wife as soon as she submits to me. Or the wife says, I, the wife, will submit to my husband as soon as he loves me. No, it doesn't tell us to do that. I have a uh, real long book by the um, uh, Puritan writer Richard Baxter. 
And he mentions in his discussion about the duties of husbands and wives that all of us enter into relationships, all relationships, thinking, what can I get out of it? As opposed to, what are my duties in this relationship? He says, we are called by God to do our duties. If the other side comes, that is a blessing from God. But it has nothing to do with whether or not I ought to do my duty. You know, I've said before that we should make godliness easier for the people around us. What does that mean? Well, if a husband is demonstrating love to his wife, it makes it easier for his wife to demonstrate godly submission to him. If the wife is demonstrating godly submission, it makes it easier for him to demonstrate love to her. So we make it easier. In fact, we'll talk about this in next week's lesson when we talk about uh, the parent-child relationship. You know, if, um, if you're a child and you have a, a lousy excuse of a father, it makes it very difficult for you later in life to understand the idea of God as our father. That's why I tell young fathers, your number one job as a father is to represent God to those children. Love, mercy, justice, all of that. Now, you aren't God, and the children will find that out very clearly. All of my children are adults. The, my baby turned 19 over the weekend. All of my children know that I make mistakes. That's not hidden from anybody. But still, the relationship that I have with them makes it easier or harder to understand our relationship with God the Father. So if we ask the question between love and submission, which comes first? If you're talking to a woman, the submission comes first. If you're talking to the man, love comes first. What comes first is whatever you can do. So, wives are to submit because God has instructed them to do so. It has nothing to do with who makes the most money, who is the stronger, who is the most reasonable, because in any given relationship, one person may exceed the other. I tell the young couples when we are mentoring them that I do believe, and we're going to see this in the next verse, that husbands are the head of the family. But I also tell them, but a man is a fool who will not listen to the wise counsel of his wife. So, the wife is to submit to the husband as, as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Once again, marriage is the picture. Marriage is the picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Christ is the head of the church, as the husband is head of the family. But in case you don't know, 
and I do know you know. I particularly know that you wives know. Christ is perfect. Husbands are not. The uh, book I referred to just a moment ago by Richard Baxter has a sentence that I just love. He has a discussion of the duties of both partners, and then he has a, a discussion of the duties of the husband and a discussion of the duties of the wife. And when he starts the section about the duties of the wife, here he is, a good Puritan. You would think he would start by saying, wives, listen to your husbands because they are great and wonderful. No. What does he say? He says, men are frail and apt to fail in such difficult duties as well as women. This is the instruction to the women. Wife, your husband is frail and he needs all the help he can get. Now, this is an interesting thought. If the wife says, okay, I'll submit to my husband as long as he's making the right decision. You've heard the old joke, right? How do you learn to make good decisions? Bad decisions. As we learn that, ooh, that didn't work, we learn to make better decisions. So if the husband knows that the wife is going to submit to him, all of a sudden, he will be more conscious of the fact that, oh, I need, I need to take the time to understand what the situation is so that I can make a better decision. If he doesn't expect his wife to follow, then he'll do whatever he wants to do. Thus, never learning to be a godly leader, because the way you learn to be a godly leader is by making mistakes and go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. On to the next step. So, we need to understand that while marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, we all know that husbands aren't perfect, wives aren't perfect. It is a human picture of a divine reality. The relationship of Christ to his church. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. What this is saying and what it's not saying. Christ is the head of the church and its savior. The husband is the head of the wife, but the husband is not the savior. Wives are not saved by their husbands. Wives are saved by Jesus Christ. But the picture of the relationship is the marriage. So, backing up even more, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, let's look at our definition again of submission. It is to yield oneself to the authority or will of another. And we talked last week about how much trouble this causes us. Because you see, even if I use verse 21, which I believe we ignore all the time, submitting to one another. If we believe that verse 21 says, okay, Tom has to submit to Mary and Mary has to submit to Tom, we begin to think, ah, if everybody is submitting to everybody, then in reality, no one is submitting to anyone. So, 
Then we get to verse 22, and it gets very specific very quickly. As I said, this is not men, women, women submitting to men. This is one man, one woman submitting to one man. And guess what? That's really specific. And we don't like it. But what does it mean? To yield oneself to the authority or will of another. It does not mean that you are a robot. It does not mean you think. You don't think. Because you're given gifts, talents, and God wants you to use them. But in a marriage, when you hit one of those situations that a decision has to be made, and you have prayed about it, and you've thought about it, and you've talked about it, the husband is ultimately responsible for making the decision, and the wife is ultimately responsible for submitting to that. Now, I would contend that in a godly couple, there are very, very few times when it comes down to, yes, I want this, no, I want this, and you're at it, and you're beating your heads against each other. I mean, I have found that if I remove, and I tell this to the mentoring couples, if I remove my ego from the equation, the ego that says, I have to be right and we have to do it my way, there are actually very few times, very few times, when we are actually in disagreement that requires one to submit to the will of the other. It isn't a daily occurrence. Now, wait, wait, wait. I know. You know that couple where the husband is a domineering brute. You know those people, right? Always telling her what to do, telling her what to wear, telling her what... Okay. We know those people. Well, I would contend that this verse doesn't make those people. Those kinds of people just like this verse. There are domineering people in this world. There are men who dominate women, and there are women who dominate men. And we need to take that to Christ and remove that domineering spirit. Because remember, everyone is under someone's authority. Number one, we're all under God's authority. Number two, we're under the authority of the elders. We're under the authority of the government. This applies to men and women. So if I'm the husband and I refuse to submit to the authority of the elders of the church, how in the world, why in the world would I expect my wife to submit to me? We're all under someone's authority. But guess what? Guess what? We don't like that. Now, just so you know, just so we are perfectly clear, this does not mean that you as a wife sit there and be a punching bag if there is abuse, psychological, physical, or other within the relationship. It may require you it may require you to remove yourself from that situation. It may require you to go to a higher level of authority, be that the government or the elders of the church, to seek help in that relationship. 
once again, in Richard Baxter's book, he has a long list of questions and this and that, and he gets down to the end. Is it acceptable for a wife to go to a higher authority? And he says, regrettably, it is. Sometimes it is necessary. So wives, if your husband is beating you, run away. This verse is not protecting your husband when he's doing that kind of behavior. But I would suspect that most, most relationships don't involve physical abuse. But a lot of relationships require sacrificing your will for the good of the other. And sometimes we don't like that. Now, back to verse 20, talking about submit, I mean, 21, talking about submitting one to another. The question is raised, are there situations where a husband should submit to the will of his wife? Well, I can actually give you an example of that. I've told you before that uh, years ago we had a young married class and um, the young married class, they took up questions. What questions do you want answered? And then they went and found people to come address those questions. So we were asked to address one specific question, which was, how do you know when you're ready to have children? Okay, so we get to this class to teach it and Teresa begins by giving her testimony you know, how she accepted Christ. And then she got to the point of, you know, we had a baby and a year later, she just wanted to have another baby. And so we had another baby and we did this and we did this. And as you know, we ended up with eight children. So she did her testimony and then she sat down and I stood up to do a Bible study. And this guy raised his hand and he said, wait a minute, all those times that your wife was saying, I want another baby, did you ever think of telling her no? And I said, no, because if God has put that on her heart, I need to submit to that. I just thought it was an interesting question on the part of the individual. So wives submit to your own husbands. I like that as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Everything is an interesting verse because you begin to think, oh, you mean every single decision? No, it doesn't mean every single decision. It means every decision for which there is conflict and disagreement and you have not been able to resolve that conflict. And as I said, that's not every decision. My wife has wonderful taste, and if she says she wants to decorate this room this way, she decorates the room that way. I actually know a husband who hates the way his wife decorates things, and every time she wants to change the decorations, he gets into a fight with her. If my ego, once again, if my ego gets involved, then I begin to think that Every decision I make has to be my way or the highway. So when it says everything, it means those decisions that are producing the disagreement and the husband as the head of the house, as Christ is the head of the church, is to be the final authority. And once again, don't ever forget this. Christ is perfect. Husbands aren't. 
Christ is perfect. Wives aren't. Christ is perfect. Shall we just keep saying this over and over again? If you're a husband and you think I'm Christ in this relationship, therefore I get to, don't go there. Don't even go there. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we could have a whole separate discussion at this point. We really could. My question as I was looking at this verse was, how well does the church submit to Christ today? Once again, we don't like submitting to anybody. We don't. So we don't. We don't. I read a survey just this week about um, the sexual activity of evangelical young people. I mean, these are people who go to church, who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, who understand some level of doctrine. Guess what? They have sex outside of marriage pretty much as much as everybody else in the world does. Why? Because they're not submitting to the church. They're not submitting to the will of the groom who is Christ. But that's a whole different topic. It's an interesting topic. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now back to the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, you are to love your wife. What does that mean? Does it mean that on Valentine's Day you give her flowers and on her birthday you give her something and the rest of the time you just do your own thing? I mean, guess what? You're the head, right? You're the man. You get to do whatever you want. That's what it means. No. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do we know that Christ loved the church because he was willing and did die for her. Now, this is interesting. I bet if I asked most husbands in healthy relationships, would you take a bullet for your wife? You know, the bad guy is standing over there about to shoot her and you jump in front of her to save her from that bullet. Most of us would probably say yes. Probably. But that's the easy part. The hard part is the day-to-day sacrificing of your own desires for the good of the beloved. That's the hard part. So here's the interesting thing, and this really gets... The husband is to love his wife and in one sense surrender his will to the will of the wife. Well, doesn't that negate the wife submitting or the need for the wife to submit to the husband? No, because leadership is a duty that is given to the husband and he can't give up his duty. He does it out of love. He does it for the good of the other. He does it considering her, but he can't give up the duty. 
because God's given him that responsibility. So if it's just a question of where are we going to dinner, then I, the husband, may totally defer to my wife, and that's fine. But if the question is who is ultimately responsible for this family, I, as the husband, do not have the right to give up that responsibility. But you don't understand. My wife makes more money. I don't care. You don't understand. My wife is more godly than I am. I don't understand. I don't care. You may need to learn from her. You may need to learn the scripture yourself just to keep up with her. But it has nothing to do with that. God has given you the responsibility. Guess what? Men don't like that responsibility. It's an interesting thing. This is a little bit of my opinion. So let's put that in parentheses, shall we? Once the feminist movement produced the idea that women should not be dependent upon men, I believe that men embraced this rapidly. Why? Because they didn't want women to be dependent upon them. Because it's very stressful. I remember reading in some magazine uh, about men, excuse me, about women who make more money than their husbands. And one of the women was complaining, oh, it's just so stressful to be the breadwinner of the family. And I'm going, you, you think so? I've been putting up with this for a long time. Men have been doing this for a long, and if I could get out of that, whew, here. But you know what? I have a responsibility before God. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, look for the good of the beloved. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, that, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In just a moment, it's going to use the phrase, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about the church. Throughout this discussion, it's like, we're going to talk about marriage, no, let's talk about the church. Oh, let's talk about marriage. Why? Because right here, he's talking about the church. It is not the husband who sanctifies the wife. It is not the husband who cleanses the wife. It is not the husband who presents the wife to God. Jesus does that. But once again, the husband's job is to make that easier for the wife. You as a husband can either encourage your wife to pursue sanctification or you can drag her down. You can help her to be cleansed by the word of God or you can drag her down. But ultimately, Jesus is the one who does these things so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot wrinkle or any such thing that she the church might be holy and without blemish this is what jesus is doing for the church 
We could have a long lesson right here about the church, but we're talking about marriage. That's what this verse is going to tell us in just a moment. But I want to stop for just one moment and encourage you about what this verse is telling us about the church. We have talked numerous times that in my mind, I, talk, I think about the big C church, which is the universal church made up of all believers throughout all of history. And they may be in Christ Chapel. They may be in the Baptist church down the street. They may even be in the Catholic church down the street. Wherever they are, all over the world, big C church. But then there's the little C church. That is the local body. That is Christ Chapel Bible Church. That is the church down the corner. That is the next church down, you know, okay? And sometimes when we're looking at the little church, we can get discouraged. Oh, there's so much problems. You know, this person doesn't like this person. This person is struggling with this, et cetera, et cetera. And we see all the difficulties. Well, the church needs to address those difficulties, but we need to be confident that the big C church will, will be presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, the big C church, will be holy and without blemish. And it's going to be holy and without blemish because of what Christ does for it. That should encourage us because the church is going to persevere. The church will survive. The local body, it may collapse. It may split over some huge doctrinal or moral issue. All those things that we as fallible human beings have to deal with. But the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ will be triumphant. So in the same way, Having just talked about what the church, the relationship between Christ and his church, in the same way, husbands love should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this is a strange thought, okay? It's going to tell us everybody loves themselves. But when I love my wife, when I love Teresa, I am doing what is best for my flourishing as a human being. I love Teresa, and that brings human flourishing to me. That relationship is a good for both of us. It is interesting because we see this statistically, actually, that marriage is better for you than, well, the alternative. It just is. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now, I might add, if you see someone that hates their own flesh, you know, people that are cutting themselves, that are inflicting harm upon themselves, most of us quickly realize that they have deep psychological problems and we usually send them to somebody for help because we know that's not the sign of a healthy relationship. But the relationship between Christ and his church is always healthy. And we as healthy men 
need to love our wives in the same way that we love our own flesh. We don't hate our own flesh, so we nourish it and we cherish it. And that's what we're supposed to do with our wives. Now, all this stuff that we saw with Christ and his church, sanctification, made holy, all of that's being done by Christ. All we can do is nourish it, that is to help it grow, and to cherish it, which is make it, make it valuable to us. And that's what we as husbands are to do to our wives. We don't hate our own flesh, but instead we nourish it and we cherish it as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ and marriage is the picture of that relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This, get, this gets quoted at almost every wedding you go to. It's actually taken from Genesis. The first time we see Adam and Eve together and he goes, wow, and we're told that therefore a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife. What does that mean? It means we need to rearrange our priorities. I, before I was married, had certain priorities in my relationship. And after I get married, I need to rearrange those so my wife is at the top of the list. You know what? When you and I accept Jesus Christ and join the church, the body of Christ, we need to rearrange our relationships. We need to rearrange our priorities so that that relationship is at the top of the list. And when I get married, all those human relationships, we're not talking here about our relationship with Christ, those human relationships need to be reordered so that my wife is at the top of the list and that she knows that she's at the top of the list. I'm sure you and I uh, have all seen uh, relationships where this wasn't entirely true. You know, the mother calls and says, eh, and you off you go. And the wife goes, who's the top of this? Who is the number one? Well, the husband, when he's nourishing and cherishing his wife, is to make sure that she understands that she is the number one human relationship, even above that of father and mother. And the interesting thing is that in a healthy relationship, as the husband leaves, it doesn't mean that he's broken that relationship. It simply means that it is lower than this one. He still maintains that relationship, but in priorities, the wife is number one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This one flesh is an interesting uh, discussion that we always have in our marriage mentoring, because I always ask them, what does it mean to become one flesh? And it's interesting because they give all these wonderful spiritual answers. Well, you know what the answer is, right? It's called sex. The two become one flesh. It's interesting because we're told in 1 Corinthians about 
if you have sex with a prostitute, you are becoming one in body, one flesh with that person. Now, in a marriage relationship, you have one flesh which produces a combined spirit that you grow closer together. But the one flesh is an important part of the marital relationship. It can't be just cast off, well, that's physical and it's not spiritual. And here we are in Sunday school, we need to come up with some really good spiritual answer. That is why when I mentioned a while ago about young evangelicals having sex at about the same rate as non-evangelicals, that's why that is so important and I might say difficult because they have separated the one flesh from the one spiritual relationship. And at some point in their life, they're going to try to put those back together and it's going to be difficult guess what? We have communion with God, with Christ as the head of the church. I'm not going to use any sexual metaphors, although I've heard people try this before. But we're going to have a relationship with them. And that relationship with respect to God's idols, if you will, is to be a single relationship between us and Christ and God as Christ as the head of the church. We're not to be running after other things. That's why in the Old Testament, when they talk about chasing after idols, they continually use the picture of chasing after a prostitute. The prostitute offers you the semblance of the relationship with a totally messed up picture of the relationship of the church with Christ. That's why marriage is so important. It is the picture. And if before or after or during you go chasing after, let's just say it, idolatry, chasing after something else, we are destroying that picture and the world is not seeing the right relationship. It's interesting. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a fascinating structure of a passage. We're talking about marriage. No, we're not. We're talking about the church. No, we're not. We're talking about, yes, we're talking about both each with their own specific aspects, their own particular look. So what is the conclusion of this passage? Verse 3, 33. Even if you don't understand all this, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the bottom line of this lesson. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. How do they do that? By submitting to them. By not causing difficulties. By not murmuring, complaining. By being loyal and faithful to them. It is interesting. There is a book that we use in our marriage uh, mentoring program called Love and Respect. That's the title of the book. And 
the book has an interesting point, or at least I thought it was interesting. All of my life, having been in a church, we teach that love, this agape love that we're talking about here, that love is, well, it's unearned. I give love, not because you are lovely, but because you are the beloved. Remember, Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. So love is to be freely given. I mean, if you're selling love, it's not love. It's, what did we talk about a while ago? Prostitution. But sometimes we take the respect and say, okay, the, the husband is to voluntarily give love to the wife, but the husband has to earn respect. How does a husband earn respect? Well, by making right decisions. How does he learn to make right decisions? By making bad decisions. Is the wife going to respect the husband even though he sometimes makes bad decisions? Otherwise, he's never going to learn. Why? What was that quote that I gave a while ago? I really like it. Man is frail and is apt to fail in such difficult duties as well as women. Guess what? Guess what? Husbands, wives, we are all fallen human beings. And God has chosen us as fallen human beings to be the picture and to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and his church. And we are promised that God will give us the grace, the grace to make that picture into what he would have it to be. Now, at this point, if we were having a pastoral lesson, we'd get into a long discussion about what about marriages that didn't work, how do we restore them, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot, a lot of pastoral teaching that needs to go into answering those questions. But we can't begin to answer those questions without knowing what God's intention is. His intention is that the relationship of the husband to the wife is the picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And we'll continue next week with the discussion about raising children. Thank you and see you next week.